Hello and welcome to Be With Champions. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And in today's episode, I have a wonderful conversation with Alistair Brownlee, the 2012 Olympic gold medalist, and then backs it up again in Rio to win the gold medal there. An incredible athlete, a true champion, and I was delighted to have him on the show. And, and in this episode, we really get a sneak peek in the mind of a champion and how he operates and how he's able to get himself up you know, four years apart for, to win that gold medal. It was a real pleasure to chat to him and I hope you enjoy this episode. I really did. If you're enjoying the, the show, please subscribe, share, give any feedback you'd like on my social media accounts, uh, review on that the app of choice. Um, I'd love to get any of that kind of reviews and feedbacks. It really helps me out. Um, enjoy this episode. I really did. Thanks for listening. All right, my next guest is arguably the greatest triathlete of all time. He's at least very much a part of that conversation. Olympic gold at his home Olympics in London, and then four years later, gold again at the Rio Olympics. Combine that with his two ITU World Championship titles, two World Team Championships, four European Championships, and the 2014 Commonwealth Games title. And most recently, he won the Western Australian Ironman in December with a blistering course record of seven hours, 45 minutes, and 20 seconds, one of the fastest ever Ironman for that distance. He races without fear, and he races for the win with absolute intent. A man that has triumphed under enormous pressure, has come back from adversity time and time again, and showed enormous character when he carried his brother across the line at the cost of his own shot at the ITU Grand Final win in 2016. I've been really looking forward to this chat and getting a peek behind the mind of one of the world's all-time greatest athletes. Welcome and thank you for joining me on Be With Champions, Mr. Alistair Brownlee. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm great, thanks. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. You're, all, you're in lockdown with everybody else, I imagine. Yeah, it's uh, crazy and interesting times, isn't it? Um, yeah, we are on lockdown here. Um, fortunately, um, we are allowed to leave the house um, here in the UK, which is great. Um, but yeah, I mean, the uh, obviously the the emphasis on life at the moment is is not training. It's um, dealing with the situation and trying to keep everyone safe. Yeah, I know. It's it's one of those things where we kind of got to knuckle down and just hang in there together for a while and i think that the hard part about it is we don't know how long I, I think it's one of those things if we were like okay if i just knew how much longer and uh it's like my motto in sport was you know success comes to those who endure just one moment longer and and really this is all about just hanging in there for one more one more day one more day at a time and i always feel like we've just done one more day so we're a day closer to to getting to our to our destination, but it's been it's been a number of years since you and I hung out. I think uh, Beijing 2016 was the last time I saw you, right after your your Olympic win in Rio, um, and and I remember that race clearly because that was the final race. You basically retired me <laughs> on, that, on that race. I, that was my DNF. fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in in there is a little bit of truth to that. It's uh, I had Javier Gomez on the show oh, quite a few episodes ago, and. And, and I said to him, it was 2011, I thought, maybe I'll, I'll give the Olympics an, another crack, um, 2012 Olympics, I'll give it a crack. And, and up until that point, I felt like everyone in the world was beatable. Like, not that I beat them every time, obviously, but I always felt they were beatable. But I remember racing you guys in Madrid and Kitzbühel of 2011, and I came home, I think it was after Kitzbühel, and you won Kitzbühel with, a, with an incredible day, the swim, bike, and run, and... And I came home and, and back to the hotel after getting 20th or something, just got absolutely whipped. And I was just like, Laura, I, I don't think I can 
beat these guys. And I said, there's two Brownleys and a Gomez. I said, I don't think I can get on that podium. Like I, it was the first time in my life that I kind of said out loud, I just couldn't figure out how to beat you guys. So as much as it took me five years to, to actually retire, it really was that 2011 period racing, you guys going, wow, this is next level. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, in that era, it was great. Uh, people like uh, me and Javi and, and obviously Johnny were racing pretty hard toe-to-toe like week in, week out. And uh, I, I enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, get fast forward into Beijing a few years after that. Um, yeah, I remember that kind of fondly. It was that post-Olympic kind of time for me. I, w- I was pretty relaxed just on my way f- to Mexico <laughs> when, you know, everything was about to go a bit crazy for me as well. Um, yeah. And I just, I just kind of gone there for something to do post Olympics and and have a bit of a race and uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed that event. Yeah, that was. I remember ch- chatting with you at the Japanese restaurant. <laughs> we were in the, in Beijing, yeah. but we all sourced out this Japanese restaurant. And I remember you saying, "Look, you know, I'm I'm going over to Cozumel." Um, it's a bit of a hit out. I've already done my goal for the year, but I know I know my brother Jonathan Brownlee's got a, a good crack at winning the World Series and, and, and we've worked well together in the past, so I'll go over there and help him. But I don't think you realised you'd have to be helping him as much as you did. Um, for those that don't know, it's an incredible watch. Just type it in on, on YouTube. It'll pop up. Um, the Brownlee brothers, you know, coming home, Cozumel, um, the grand final of the I2 World Series where – where, where poor old Johnny had had a, a heat meltdown, um, which anybody that's in the sport long enough has probably experienced, and it's very frightening. And I think you've experienced it yourself. And so I think you were, you know, first on the scene as you watched him sort of with about 200 meters to go from the race, starting to wobble and fall off the course, and, and you picked him up and, and grabbed him and carried him to the line. It was an incredible moment. I know you've relived it probably a thousand <laughs> times with interviews, but it, but it really did. Uh, I, I think put triathlon on the on the global stage even more so than any of your Olympic wins. So <laughs> it really yeah, was special. It was a mad, it was a mad um, few days for me. You know, I was uh, kind of running around with two k to go, thinking, "Oh, this is uh, job done here." You know, end of a great year, Johnny's world champion. Mm-hmm. I've um, you know had, the, had success at the Olympics. Um, pretty much already imagining what cold drink I was going to order as soon as I could cross the finish line. Um, and then, yeah, it all went wrong. And um, it, it wasn't really till that next morning uh, that we kind of had any idea the scale of it. The, literally the night before, I was like, oh, no, you know, um, I've actually broken the rules here and um, nearly got disqualified, never been disqualified before in my, in my career. Uh, what have I done wrong? Johnny's in intensive care. My mum's ringing me saying, Mm. What have you done to your brother? Is he all right? You know, let me know. Uh, and uh, just absolute carnage. And went to bed that night thinking, oh, you know, what what a day. <laughs> what a disaster. Yes. And, um, yeah, the, the the difference to waking up the next morning and, um, yeah, the scale of the reaction. I could never have imagined it. It was absolutely crazy. Yeah, I mean, especially when, you, like you said, you were kind of winding down your year. You'd already had your emotional high of winning the Rio Olympics and and backing up that that gold that you'd had in London, which we'll, we'll get back to you know later in the show. But it was kind of that that having to almost have these emotions triggered when you just wanted to almost just relax and be done with the year. And I remember the the whole debate that was going on: should they be disqualified? What are the rules? But everything else, it was like, mm. can't we just all embrace? I don't know. For me, I think embrace the moment 
of sportsmanship and dare I say it, brotherly love. As I'm, I'm sure it wasn't always brotherly love over the last <laughs> thirty years, but uh-huh. I, it was. It was a moment that that I that I think. I think a lot of us watching it live were, were like, "Wow, that was that was really cool, and it was really special." And and uh, and I think Mario Mola still won the world title, if I memory serves he me did, correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. and so and it didn't have an impact yeah. with that, I suppose. Um, I think you know, from my point of view, it's kind of that's hindsight to say, you know, what an amazing moment. I think in the throes of it, you know, I can really. Um, sympathize with the officials who were there literally on the side of the course you know they probably had no idea of kind of how people are watching it around the world as you know they've probably just seen the snapshot shot of the finish line of me and him stumbling down it they um kind mm. of didn't quite have a context and they were trying to make mm. a decision within minutes um while mm. johnny was in intensive care we were supposed to get on the podium etc 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 um yeah they they weren't in an easy <laughs> position either and mm. it, yeah it was it was a it was a crazy few hours yeah you make a valid point there that they would have only just seen you that final kind of 50 meters coming down and they wouldn't have seen what had happened sort of around the corner 150 meters before and I think the the kind words that you gave your brother as you grabbed him from stepping off the course, <laughs> you grabbed him and it's like, what the effing are you doing, buddy? Get back on the course. And what have you done to yourself? It was like this this older brother that can only talk to his younger brother like no one else can. Basically, listen, mate, you're going to finish this race. I don't know what's happened to you. but And and it looked like a little bit. Look, he, he was in serious trouble. And, and it was like, let's get you some – care it was almost like let's get you off the front line and, and get you the medical support you need and the only way you're going to do that is if you get to the finishing line uh, is that true absolutely yeah i, I um have been in that position myself and like you said it's a really scary uh, position to be in um have you ever been in that position you know it yeah when i uh yeah, yeah. I, I had actually one of my very first races in 1988 i was uh, i was taken to hospital and don't remember the, any of it um and then I've had one or two others as well. Yeah. But I think learning your own body and, and what it mm. takes in terms of cooling and hydration. And I almost, they're two different things. Um, you know, one, we got to hydrate and the other is you got to keep the body cool. And, and, and how do you do that? And I'll never forget your one in London of yeah, 2010, London. was it? Yeah. 10. Yes. And you, you had the lead, you had a significant lead, didn't you? Uh, I was kind of running neck and neck with Javier Gomez, basically, That's with right. only a few hundred meters to go. Mm. And I, and then all of a sudden, it was like you guys were running like sub three minute kilometer pace, which for anybody who doesn't know, that's basically running flat out. And then all of a sudden, you just hit a brick wall. Normally, we see athletes kind of slow down um, over time. You basically went from running sub three minute K pace to, well wobbling all over the place and, and walking into the fence and um did you you managed to finish though, right did you finish yeah i finished um my my last memory of it is which is why i was so keen to help johnny out whatever it was uh six years later my last memory of it was 300 meters to go running neck and neck with uh javier just on his shoulder thinking if i get in the last hundred here i'm, I'm gonna you know sprint around him and, and win the race and that's all good <laughs> Um, and then literally waking up in the hospital bed covered in ice, um, drips coming out my arms, thermometers stuck where they shouldn't be. And, uh, 
yeah, waking up and saying, first thing I said is, where did I finish? And someone said, I think whatever it was, 10th, I think 10th or 12th. And I said, what, 10th? You know, I, I had no idea <laughs> that nine people had managed to come past me in that time. Yeah, I I remember watching that one and all of us were just in, in horror because the one thing we got you comfortable with, especially during that 2010, you know, you'd come off 2009 after basically winning every race in 2009 and, and it was almost like the Alistair Brownlee era where you were just winning everything. And and like you said, it was almost an expectation that you'd probably sprint around uh, Javier for the win in that race and then all of a sudden, um, you know, here you were sort of wobbling in off off the course. It was, it really was a scary moment in sport. And I think a lot of athletes listening to this have probably had moments where they've gone too far with heat exhaustion and, um, you know, and then having races like the one with Johnny in 2016, um, Cozumel being the grand final, uh, it definitely took me back to the days where we had Cancun as the world championships in 95. Um, and then again in 2000 and, well, I can't even remember now. My, my memory doesn't serve me well, but mm-hmm. those races in Mexico were, were brutal for the heat and, and often fairly slow because of it. And, and that actually makes me launch forward now, and I don't know how far forward, but to Tokyo where we're going to be probably dealing with uh, fairly similar circumstances. And, and I almost think maybe for you and, and your brother Johnny, now that you've had those experiences, you, you're going to be better prepared for it going, going you know, forward. Yeah, I think it's a couple of things, isn't it? I think uh, it's knowing where your limit lies, as as um, limits lie, as cliche as that sounds. Um, I think it's knowing in the heat, like you said, it's um, the battle doesn't become the the limiting factor. Isn't you know what your VO two max or or whatever you want to call it, like how much oxygen you can process, which is the the normal limit of what we all mm. know we, that we've all trained since we were running around fields as school kids. We now, if you start breathing too hard, you can't keep going for very long. The limit becomes mm. um, how much fluid you can get in over a long time and how much that, that heat is affecting you. Um, and I think you know everyone's come a long way in terms of how to prepare and, and train for racing in, in those conditions. So, yeah, uh, that's the, that is definitely the, the big challenge that everyone um, everyone's identified for uh, yeah. Tokyo and uh, for sure. I mean, that's going to be, that is going to be challenging in 2021 now. Now it's changed. Yeah. 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 It has changed now. And, 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 uh, I mean, we're on Tokyo, we're talking about Tokyo. So let me, let me just sort of ask you a couple of quick questions on that. And, and you've sort of announced that you would give Tokyo Olympics another go. Um, in, with it moving back a year, is that, does that help you kind of refocus your training for the shorter stuff and give you an extra 12 months? Or were you kind of like, I just wanted to get it done? Uh, I think, um, yeah, firstly, I mean, I say I want to be there. We don't know what's going to happen over the next year and we'll see, you know, mm. it was, uh, I was doing everything I possibly could to get myself to the start line for Tokyo, uh, this year. And, um, yeah, to be honest, it, it, I'd done and got a lot further than I thought I would. So I, I was pleased with that. I think, um, you know, uh, logically a year could be worse a year older get, getting to be 33 instead of 32 uh, getting on a bit um but it you know it could be a better as well this time last year i thought i had no chance of um trying to make it you know even being in the position to race in tokyo in 2020 and in that year actually my body's been healthy i've trained well i've enjoyed it been in a good place enjoyed the training um and so yeah but that year 
kind of forward has brought me a long way. And um, yeah, I think one of the things in 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 athlete career, probably especially as you as you get a bit older, is it becomes it's really hard to entirely predict what a year is going to bring. Um, I think especially to race at the really sharp end of the sport, which obviously the Olympics is. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'd, I'd still love to be there, and I'll still be at the moment although not right at the moment because um, at the moment I'm just kind of ticking over and doing what I feel like day mm. to day. But yeah, as it stands at the moment, I will be doing everything I can to, to be there. Well, I kind of think, um, well, a couple of things on that. Firstly, I think they should just give you the spot and you shouldn't have to qualify <laughs> or anything. I think you, you've given the country two gold medals and, and a lot more than that. You've been such a great ambassador for the sport of triathlon just through your performances over the time and the way you speak and the Brownlee Foundation, which we can go into in a little bit. But you've done so much for the sport, both you and Johnny. Um, and I know, you know you're the golden boy because you've got the two golds, but he's, his resume is one of the most outstanding resumes on, it, on its own merit in the world. Um, so between the two of you, what you've done for the sport, specifically in Britain, I mean, worldwide, you're obviously very well known, but within Britain and Yorkshire and the whole lot, you guys are, you know, rock stars and superstars. And don't get me wrong, I, I, I do feel like there's got, you've got to make room for the up-and-coming guys to have a chance as well. But sometimes I feel like the Olympics should be, you know, just the most deserved and honourable people should go, but that's not the way it is and, and you will have to qualify. Secondly, 33 is not old, mate. It's still young in the sport. I mean, yeah, I was very impressed with how you managed to keep going. Quite how you did it. (laughs) Absolutely amazing. At 30, coming nearly 32, it's my birthday in a few weeks. I'm starting to feel old. I mean, you had another 10 years in you. Amazing. Well, well, what what the, the difference is, and like you've done, is, you know, even this last couple of years, you've started mixing up and going long course. And, and the number one thing that'll go first is your passion. And that's what mm. I felt like. I loved the swimming, biking and running. I loved the racing. What I didn't enjoy was doing the little things, trying to keep the body healthy, you know, eating right, the, um, the, the little bits and pieces. But I never stopped loving racing. I never stopped loving the hard training. I never, I, mm. the, the thing that left me was that, that, that real wanting to having to do the rollers. And the more, the more, the older I got, the more body work I had to do. And that was kind of like, ugh. Mm. But, um, but I still think in terms of your engine, in terms of uh, the chassis, the body that you've got, um, you know, you've still got a good five, six years of, of peak performance if you want it. And uh, I know for you, you've been pushing incredibly hard since, from what I understand, seven, eight years of age, you know, oh. and, and, and that may be that you get to the point, you're like, oh, I'm tired. You know, I'm just a bit tired and and maybe it's you take a small break and then you'll maybe come back again. But for me, it was I I raced ITU focus until probably 2004, till I was 32, about your age. And then that next four-year block, I'd do maybe one ITU race a year. And, and that was just to for interest sake, and there was some money at the High V race and Malula Bar. I loved the one in Australia that was a hometown race. So there was a couple of things like that I would do, but otherwise I moved my whole career over to the US where the big non, non-drafting racing really took off and big money and it was different racing. So there was a new stimulus. And I think that's what gets tiring. I think when you, hop, when you get to the point and you hop on the start line and you look left and right and you go, oh, I've kind of done this before, that's when it's like, eh, maybe I need to find a new stimulus. And it looks like you've kind of been doing that um, and giving yourself a bit of a freshen up over these last couple of years by going long course. So tell me, Let's go. Let's have a look at that and and tell me what you think about this sort of long course, the seventy point threes you've done, and 
like I mentioned at the top of the show, the blistering Ironman you did in, in Western Australia this past couple of years. Yeah, so I guess post-2016, I um, absolutely knew I wanted to do something different. I've, I've been doing triathlon since I was eight years old um, and obviously always been aware of the long-distance stuff and Ironman and Kona, you know, literally since I was probably eight or nine years old, I've known about it. So it's been something um, on my to-do list. Um, and I think, uh, you know, with like you said, it, it's important for me to have a, a, a change of scenery um, and maybe step a little step outside that arena, as it were. I, you know, London was a massive deal um, for me. I, I, I'd known about the London Olympics since it was announced in 2007. You know, even at that time, um, no, 2005, so seven years before um, the day. And even at that time, you know, a, a teacher in the school corridor on the day it was announced said to me, you should be there and wouldn't that be amazing? So, you know, it's probably no exaggeration to say in almost every day um, in those seven years in somehow I'd, I'd, I'd thought about it, um, even though it did feel irrelevant in some ways, it was too far away and I didn't think it'd ever be that good. Uh, it, it was always in my mind somewhere. So that, that was a massive kind of thing to overcome and then some kind of frustrating injuries and stuff in the run-up to, to Rio and I was, I was really pleased to obviously to to perform well there um mm. and win that and yeah then it was it was just time to do something different um i would have liked to have been able to push on a bit quicker as it were with that long distance career um and it didn't work out like that basically because i uh, had a few nasty injuries uh, you know the, especially the run up this kind of six months run up to rio where i was actually coming off ankle surgery and desperately trying to uh get my body in a position to, to to race to win the olympics you know i was really pushing through things that perhaps in the long run wasn't great and so i had a you know a few years tough with injury and and feeling all a bit down with it really as you know injuries i think is probably the toughest part of being a professional yeah. athlete and um yeah the you know injury after injury when you can't do what you love which is exactly i agree completely with you which is basically training hard and racing um mm the the gym exercise and the rest of it isn't particularly what I enjoy at all um I, I really struggled with that and so yeah the, the kind of up until last year the racing that I did I've been constantly hampered with injuries um I enjoyed it I, I enjoyed the challenge of doing the longer stuff I enjoyed the challenge of learning to ride my time trial bike you know changing switching that power over to long consistent power rather than jumping around and and being um, training for group riding effectively and, and enjoyed the challenge of being aerodynamic and getting nutrition right and racing for four hours and um, yeah just training and, and learning and, and training for new things I enjoyed all of that and um, it wasn't really till probably the last year even the back end of last year that I really started to feel like actually this is more myself here you know I actually feel like I'm getting into the 90% of what I am athletically capable rather than the 70s or mm. 80% um, and yeah, I think in some ways that was a kind of probably two or three years that was almost just a step out of the sport, really. Um, half mm. a step out, one leg out, um, and mm. and still racing and doing what I could, but kind of injured and um, not really that focused. Uh, and yeah, the last six months, back end of last year into this year, that kind of changed around. So, um, and I had that kind of passion to race, you know, it was really strange. Uh, Obviously, did, did the Ironman race Kona um, 
but probably the most positive thing of all of last year was uh, waking up the morning after Kona and being like, I want to do another Ironman and I want to do it this year and I want to do it soon, which is probably exactly exactly what you're not supposed to think. But um, and, and that was my uh, that was very much my thought process, and um, that's why I ended up entering Australia. And I, I enjoyed, you know, really enjoyed training for that. I, I felt good. My body was kind of uh, probably as you know as well when 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 things are going well and training's going well and day in day out you can just do the training you want to do and you know the body's working and you know you can get up that morning and get out of bed and do the run you need to do rather than get up and you're like oh this is stiff this is sore <laughs> you know that's mm. not the position you want to be in and um yeah kind of finally got myself in that position and uh really enjoyed that process of uh trying to get it right there both in terms of training and um trying to get the other things right nutrition especially um dealing with the heat uh, and yeah mm. i feel like um so i met all of that yeah it was funny you you mentioned like the 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 doing the 90 percent of what you think you're good at rather than the 70 percent i i kind of that's a for me a kind of mindset that i had is that everybody throughout my career kept saying greg you know when are you going to step up to ironman step up to ironman i'm like well I actually think my natural ability is specifically non-drafting Olympic distance. It was I wasn't too bad at the ITU, the draft legal, but I, I really preferred just the non-drafting time trial bike racing. But finally, by sort of the age of 40, I said, okay, I'll give this long course stuff a go and did Melbourne Ironman and then did Kona. And I didn't do either of them very well. And even the 70.3s I did, I think I, I did about 15 70.3s. And even the ones that I won, I think I won about half of them. But I crossed the line and I'd come back to Laura and I'd say, you know, we'd be back in the hotel room. I'd say, I didn't enjoy that. And it was like, well, hang on, what am I, what am I trying to do here? You know, if, if my passion is this short course head to head racing, why am I kind of moving away from it? But it was a nice little reprieve to have, like you said, a nice little step away. And, and I, the other thing I want to touch on is you mentioned the freedom you have when you're training without injury and, I was a bit like you. I was always on the knife edge where an Achilles injury or something was right around the corner. And um, I'll never forget going into, I think, 2011 High V. And this was the big North American race. Uh, not, first time it was going to be non-drafting. Um, and it had, you know, $200,000 for the, for the win and all these bonuses. And I was like, okay, I'm going to focus on this. And I remember I went about two or three months with almost no niggles, no injuries. And that very rarely happened throughout my career. And I remember just being excited to race because I'd man- managed such a long stint without having to be stressed about an Achilles or an IT, you know, ITB or a psoas injury. I had all these different things that were always going throughout my body that were constant maintenance. And boy, it was like, it just felt so amazing to go for a period where I didn't have any, any issues. Yeah. Um, for sure. I think, uh, yeah, I've been lucky enough to have some good stretches, you know, I guess um, periods of running into races, long months at a time of, of no injury. But yeah, that's what I do it for, really, to be able to get up in the morning and actually, I love the racing, I love standing on start lines, but just to be able mm-hmm. to train as hard as I can day in, day out, um, that, that's the, the important thing for me. So so ultimately, you can get to races and um, be satisfied with, with where you're at and that you've done everything you can. 
Mm. Well, I think it was a fantastic year in the end, the way you wrapped it up last year with that with that Western Australian win, like I said, in seven hours 45, which is really motoring. And, and I have no doubt in my mind, whatever you decide that you truly want, that you'll make it happen. You're, you're one of those athletes that whether it be Olympic gold or winning the team gold with your brother um, at Tokyo with the new new gold medal that triathlon has with the, the relay, um, I, I think – but if you decide, hang on, no, I really want to go win Kona and and really establish myself as a great, you know, Ironman world champion, I have no doubt in my mind you'll make that happen as well. And I, I think most people would agree with me. It just depends on what Alistair wants. And that doesn't mean it's going to come easy to you, but I don't think you'd want it easy. I don't think you're somebody that enjoys the easy road. I think you enjoy challenging yourself and to somewhat punishing yourself, you know, and, and seeing where you can get to. But what I want to do now is just step back and and sort of ask you, when did you sort of first find endurance sports and how did that look? When was your passion for for this? Because, you know, growing up where you did, I would have thought football, you know, soccer for people that <laughs> from yeah. the other part of the world um, or cricket or rugby would have been the big sports for you. When was it that you were like, I'm going to be an endurance athlete? Yeah, a long time ago. Uh, yeah, I very much brought up in a, I guess, a world of people playing football and yeah, soccer, rugby, cricket. Uh, and to be honest, to some extent, when I was five, six, seven, eight years old, I did everything. Um, it turned out that I was absolutely useful, useless at anything that involved a ball. So uh, <laughs> I kind of quickly got diverted away from that. Um, Johnny says that he was the, um, the cricketer. And if you talk to him, he'll say that he should have played cricket for Yorkshire and rugby for Leeds Rhinos and football for Leeds United. He could have done it all <laughs> and for some reason chose triathlon, but something didn't add up in that story. Um, and uh, But I, 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 I wasn't all. I was terrible. And um, I, I, my mum um, had been a swimmer and um, the one of the local swimming clubs was kind of just around the corner at a local pool. Um, and she had like a kind of a collection of medals i guess and um you know they were like local medals like the leeds reasonable reason regional whatever <laughs> under 18 breaststroke 50 meters or something um and you know a whole bag of them and i remember just thinking i, I kind of want medals like that and uh, <laughs> at, at some point i got told that um if i went to the swimming club i could also uh i could also win medals like that and ended up going to the local swimming club that was called air swimming club and um yeah been uh yeah swimming i think two or three times a week had some friends that lived uh, across the the road from me as well and um did a bit of swimming um did a bit of you know just local swimming races um wasn't particularly good at that either but for some reason kind of liked it and um yeah did it you know whatever 25 meter breaststroke and uh, 25 meters backstroke, uh, and started, you know, won, won a few medals, I think just silvers and bronzes and, uh, yeah, just kind of did more and more. And then at, at some point, uh, my dad was quite into running, but I think it was as much, you know, local school cross country. Um, and you know, it, almost every school, I don't know what it's like in other countries, but I think Australia is quite similar like this, but in the UK, you know, if you're doing school like at winter, you kind of do cross country running, um, and most people hate it. It's like, oh, don't make us run around the the football pitches again in the mud. Uh, 
and for some reason I enjoyed it. So I started doing cross country and the I think when I was like seven, six or seven, I did the local lead schools cross country races and I think the first one I did I came two hundred and ninety ninth, but you know, that's just in Leeds. I was terrible at it. Uh and but decided I wanted to get better and every one slowly just uh did a bit more running and got a little bit better and and that was it I, you know I still think actually of all the sporting events I've ever done and I've been lucky to do all kinds of sporting events across you know different sports and different countries there's still something about cross-country running that um is it's just the pure simplicity of it you know loads of people turn mm-hmm. up to muddy field and run around a few stakes in the grass <laughs> like it's just absolutely ridiculous like what a stupid event when you think about it but um yeah I, I think that's part of the beauty of it as well um and yeah then i was um uh, just after that you know very soon after that as eight eight years old i think uh my i had an uncle at the time who was doing some um doing some triathlon and um decided to give triathlon a go and uh, there was some local triathlons at the time just local in leeds um at the time you know kids triathlons so by now we're in about 96 97 local triathlons where you're swimming in a swimming pool i don't know like four lengths or something jump out cycle round the the soccer pitch at the back of the pool a few times and and run around it as well and and that's uh and that was a triathlon and yeah for some reason that uh intrigued me and that was it um from there i was basically doing swimming running cross country doing some stuff in the winter and um doing triathlon in the summer and and when was it that you were like i'm actually i'm actually pretty good at this you know when did you identify that you had some real talent and strength for for what you were doing yeah i don't know for me it wasn't about uh like feeling i was good at it or it was just about kind of doing it it's just what i did it became a real um you know whatever on a monday night i was going swimming on a tuesday i was going running on a saturday we were driving somewhere to do a triathlon um it it was just my life and i think you know the credit that really goes to my to my mum and dad you know they both doctors but at the same time literally driving us to different sporting events or club activities every night of the week and different parts of the country every weekend when you look back at it it's pretty amazing Mm. and um it, it was just life it was it was what we did um but in terms, there was a very kind of a, a moment when I was when I was 18 um, and that's like, if I can win the World Junior Championships that were in Lausanne that year in 2006, you know, I think I'm good at this and I'll, um, I think I'm good enough to try and basically focus it on it and, uh, you know, make this be my um, kind of focus in terms of mm. um, to, trying to do well at it. And that was, uh, yeah, that, that was a kind of big turning point. That was a massive turning point. I, I often ask guests at what point, you know, did they decide to go all in? And and for you, it's, it's almost very clear when you just look at the resume because in, in that 2006 Lausanne World Championships, at 18, you won the World Junior Championships. Um, then at 20, so two years later, you know, you win the under-23 World Championships. You you qualify for the Olympic Games in Beijing and finish 12th. Um that that little window there and then 2009 sorry i've got to finish with that 2009 you're 21 
And then you win five from five races at your start and win the the overall World Series that year. So in the space of like saying, actually, I'm pretty good at this, winning World Juniors, you then go on to win under 23 World Champs and boom, in 2009, you, you just, you know, light the stage on fire. And, and that's a three-year window. And you can, it's it's incredible when you get to see, and this is why I really wanted you on the show, because it's like you can see the level of intent you must have brought to your game that said, right, this is what I want to do. And, and for listeners that don't know, what's also remarkable about you is that your education was obviously paramount as well. You know, here you are, you you, you went to medical school at Cambridge. Um, I think you left Cambridge to go back to Leeds, you know, six months or 12 months later um, to study sports science and physiology, which you, you finished. Um, and then you also went on to, and this is a bit later, you know, because and tell me if I'm wrong, but you got a Master of Finance and graduated that in 2013, which means you were doing that during your preparation for the London Olympics. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I studied all along. Um, it was a very natural thing for me to do, to be honest. Um, you know, once I was back in Leeds, uh, obviously my, I, I come from a relatively kind of academic family, and so it's kind of what I did, and that was really important. Um I, uh, my coach and all the coaching based around Leeds was out of the universities. Um, you know, it wasn't part of the federation or anything else. It was basically the university supporting it. And they were, they were amazing, both in terms of supporting the coaching network and facilities and also me to study and Johnny to study alongside our, um, doing sport. Uh, and yeah, at the time moving exams and stuff was completely new. It's just not what people did um for a sporting event but uh, you know i think i can't exactly remember the dates but literally on the the first world series in 2009 that i went on to win in madrid i, I think i was doing an, an exam that morning to fly out the afternoon to race you know the day or two days later it, it was it was that kind of crammed in and yeah and then my coach malcolm my running coach who i'd known since i was 14 was he was really keen to uh he was really keen on education. So even after I finished that first degree in 2009, he said, you're not ready to be a full-time athlete. You're like, yeah, you should carry on and do something else with your spare time. Uh, and that was it. Yeah. I ended up doing, I, I thought at the time, right, if I'm going to do something, I should, yeah, who knows what I'm going to end up doing. I, I actually might be able to make a career in sport here and, you know, this might be my career, but I should do a degree that I can apply to anything. And that's why we did a master's in, finance and yeah I, I was doing it right up well I didn't do an awful lot that year I think in 2012 and I ended up writing a, a thesis just after the London Olympics because I had to get it in um although I think mostly I had a, a bit of an injury I think early 2013 I think it must have been and if I hadn't had that injury I probably wouldn't have got it done then either but <laughs> it gave me a couple of weeks of focused work uh, but yeah, it was just a, it was just another thing to do and I'm, I'm really glad kind of Malcolm guided me down that that route to be honest it, it's extraordinary because the amount of athletes i've had on here that basically said look i decided to go all in and put study aside and and uh, i won't mention names but you, you can look at the guys that i've interviewed and most of them have sort of said i didn't end up finishing my degree it doesn't mean they haven't all gone on to have successful careers post-sport that they they all had to put their degrees on hold um to be able to achieve some success, some of them had some extraordinary success, but I mean, not only did you not put these on hold, I love the fact that you were training for probably one of the highest pressure 
events of your life, a hometown Olympics going in as the favorite. I just, we, I want to talk to you a lot more about this, but, but you were studying at the same time. And maybe it was, maybe this is a secret for any young listeners out there to help take some pressure off your race performances. If, if you've got pressure elsewhere to put, get a thesis out or whatever it is you need to be doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, I think there is something to having a, something, you know, something else in your life. Uh, everyone's different. Yeah. And people motivate themselves in different ways and people, cope with pressure in different ways and people have different I guess capacities to do um you know to to deal with life and do things in different ways and I think for me uh I think it was really important that I had something else going on mm. um and I could almost I guess like compartmentalize things you know be like right mm. uh I can't remember exactly the timetable but you know it's now Tuesday afternoon I um Tuesday afternoon is studying and um it's not about training and um yeah i think that was quite and and having a different set of people um i could kind of uh, train with as well or you know or, or hang out with um in terms of friends from uni and be like right i can do something different mm. rather than be completely sport focused but um mm. I, you know i get the other side there's there's been long sections of my life as well where i've been completely uh single minded to Uh, you know to try and produce the result as well like what you've heard so far then make sure you never miss a podcast by clicking the subscribe button now this show is only made possible by you the listener and if you'd like to support greg please visit the be with champions patreon page your support very much appreciated now back to the show i I want to chat to you a little bit about your relationships your 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 team your family um the expert you've surrounded yourselves with you know you mentioned your your commitment from your mum and dad and your mum being a swimmer and your dad being a runner and the fact that they they drove you all around and, and they were just very supportive parents it sounds like they weren't those typical well not say typical they they weren't parents that were driving you or johnny or any of any of their kids i think edward is your brother um you've got two brothers right you're an all-boy family yeah that's right yeah three of us yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're the same as my family. And so it's like this all-boy family where it's just on a weekend of sport is just craziness. Um, and it just sounds to me like they were incredibly supportive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my parents have, have been great from uh, yeah, shipping us around as kids to watching us all over the world. And um, yeah, they. I think now you know. I think they like watching us, although it's a bit nervous, nervous times for them. But um, <laughs> I think they like using the excuse of uh, a race being on here or there to, to travel and um, you know go for a holiday somewhere as well. So yeah, <laughs> they've, they've always been very supportive, and um, yeah, it's it's been great. And um, we obviously our youngest brother Ed. Um, I mean, he's not so bothered about watching us, and but he's he's great just to, uh, for a grounding influence. You know, it doesn't matter whether you've had the best race in the world and just won the Olympics or the worst race. He's the same person. He's just like, uh, what have you been up to? You've been you know messing around with that stupid sport you two do, kind of thing. 
<laughs> yeah, it's funny. I think we were all waiting, you know, us as athletes. It was like, Alice, you came on the scene. It was like, okay, Alistair Brownlee's here. And they're like, he's got a brother. We're like, oh, crap. And then Johnny, oh. Johnny Brownlee comes on the scene and they're like, he's got another brother. We're like, oh, no more. So I think we we're all kind of relieved when when Ed decided to uh, to not pursue the, the the triathlon sort of, you know, world. And, and it's funny, when I was chatting to Javier Gomez, he said, look, his, his brother – um, is far more talented than he is. And I said, oh, well, we escaped that one then as well. We didn't have a, a mm-hmm. double Gomez uh, one. And, and so Johnny, you know, obviously there's a lot being said about the two of you um, and the fact that you've been able to work together, race against each other, still remain what looks like friends um, <laughs> for the yeah. most part. Uh, the term, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for the most part. But you, you're very, you're genuine brothers, which means that it shouldn't be always rosy the whole time. I think you guys speak your truths to each other quite freely, um, which I think sport almost forces you to. And I think sport almost makes you the most vulnerable person in, at times, you know, like you said, carrying him across the line in 2016 and, and your, your kind of heat exhaustion in 2010, that it, it can really bring you to the very, very bottom and injuries and everything else that you deal with. Are you guys able to kind of, pick each other up uh, and, you know, or is it at times you bring each other down? How does that work? I think, yeah, it's a constantly adapting relationship. And I think we, we do very well most of the time considering, you know, we're basically competitors. We, uh, you know, we work together, have the same hobby, have the same friendship group, you know, relax in the same way, spend months together away on, on training camps, uh, yeah, I, I think I think we do well, and I think um, one of the big changes we kind of have to constantly make is, yeah, we we both know that uh, we can be the best possible thing for each other in terms of pushing each other on and when, um, but it kind of changes when we can do that. So, you know, like fifteen years ago when we we're going out training, we'd go out on for an average steady bike ride, and it'd end up being an all-out race up a hill. Um, and you know it'd just be like an hour and a half steady ride and we'd end up going up a hill and he would ride off a wheel in front of me and I'd be like well that's it you started <laughs> um, but we we, we kind of know we can't really do that anymore um, and because when we're training kind of seriously you end up you know you can't go out on an easy ride and then do that and then be doing a track session half an hour later um, or maybe you could but it wouldn't go very well um, so yeah, we kind of learned how yeah. to deal with that, I guess, and adapt. Um, but yeah, for one of the, I think one of the bad things for the last three years or so, we haven't really trained together like that. You know, injuries. I've been training for longer stuff. That's changed. And um, in the last kind of six months, we've we've you know day in day out been doing stuff together. And um, a couple of weeks ago was the first time, literally in in four years, we we're at the point where we're kind of back on a track, actually, like running and. and kind of pushing each other on and both training for the same thing and um yeah for me at least it was really surprising how much i'd kind of missed that how much i enjoyed that how much uh i really enjoyed being able to um yeah just be there pushing it on and, and basically i suppose in the hardest sessions trying to screw johnny over in a way but at least have a you know have a good race about it um and yeah it's um that that's kind of how we were training and it, it was really good doing that it's almost scary for the rest of the world that the two of you are back together again because I think there's been a little bit of um, less dominance of 
individual athletes over the last sort of four years. I think there was this this kind of window from sort of 2007, 2008, uh, where it was the Gomez and then you came along and the Brownlee scene, but, and both you and Johnny. It was kind of like the two Brownlees and Gomez and and if it, it had to be one of you three that was going to be winning the race. It was very rare that anybody else would win a race up until, you know, 2016. That's just how it was. And then, um, you know, post-2016, all of a sudden, you know, you've had your struggles with injuries. You've been sort of in and out of the, you know, doing some long course, a little bit of short course every now and then. Johnny's missed his number one training partner. Um, Javier Gomez kind of put his, you know, started stepping out and doing a little bit of the longer stuff as well. And I almost feel like with you and Johnny coming back together, um, with Javier refocused after, you know, the poor guy broke his arm before Rio and, and we didn't get that big shootout, which we were hoping for between you and him. And I know you told me in 2016, you wished he was there as well because you wanted the very best to be on the start line as well in 2016. But for those that don't know, Javier Gomez broke his arm about six weeks before the Rio Olympics and um, and, and it just would have been a really great showdown. And anyway, um, and now you're all sort of saying, yeah, let's give let's give one more Olympics a good crack. And I think for all of us that are huge fans of, you know, you and, and Johnny and, and, and Javier Gomez, I think it'd be great to have you all back to take on the new generation of young guys. I mean, you're still young, so I don't really know what uh-huh. I'm saying here, but, but the Vincent Louis, the Christian Blumenfeld, Mario Mola, um, guys that have been, you know, really taking advantage of the fact that, you know, the Brownlee brothers haven't been training together. You've been out and, and Gomez has been away. So I, I think, you know, I hope these Olympics are happening and, and, and we can we can see you guys all prepared and ready to battle it out in, in 2021 where you won't be old. So <laughs> I think, you know, and, and what about the rest of your team of experts, you know, y- your coaches and physios and bike mechanics? Have you been able to establish a really good team around you? Is it all around the Leeds University Um I know you've kind of got your own center and everything that you've built there, right? Yeah, it's kind of changed over the years, really. Um, the initial two coaches that I mainly had in in Malcolm and, and Jack have actually both retired, um, mm. and and that's a shame. Um, you know, things have changed. Leeds has developed over the time that we've been around from four or five of us training um, together to like 100 people across four squads and, um, you know, about four or five coaches and managers and this and that. So it's a very changing beast. Um, but I think one of the really nice things about uh, what we've done is we've kind of got, we very much do the same thing. So yeah, coaches, the, the kind of main coach um, who will work with day and day out now is a guy who, uh, when I first went to the track and met Malcolm when I was 14 in 2002, uh, Mitch was running around the track and at the time he was doing 800s and I think I was doing 200s with him or something and to keep up and um, yeah and now you know he's he's pretty much the coach but you know still a lot of contact with Malcolm um, and yeah I, I still run with guys that I've known for most of that time um, uh, one of the main other guys we, we train with in, in Mark Buckingham I've, I've known since I was about 12 as well um, and guys that I've cycled with for all that time as well still get out as much as I can with the local group run with um, some local guys uh, do a bit of swimming with a a swimming coach Cos that again I I met when I was about 14 Um, so you know a lot really hasn't changed and um, actually in the the last year we've probably actually gone back to to do a lot more training how we how we did kind of 10 years ago 
just simplify things, go back to simple things, train with more diverse group of people, younger people, older people, get out with the local groups and stuff. And, and that's always been the basis of a lot of our training. Mm. Well, it's a lot of fun to have those groups. And, and one of the things when I'm working with athletes and whether I'm consulting or coaching them is don't worry about me writing you a swim program. Go find a local swim squad, you know, go, go yeah. just jump in. Don't overthink it. And, and it's the same to some degree with the bike groups. Um, I think you can do some good, you know, I, I love the bike trainer, the indoor trainer, and I'm, I haven't done the Zwift things that these days you guys all have, but for me it was just Not old. even recently. Everyone's doing it now. <laughs> <laughs> I know, everybody. It seems yeah. every time I, I go on Instagram, there's another Zwift workout. I'm like, I'm feeling fat and lazy. Just watch. I never go on social media anymore i'm like oh, somebody's always working out on their zwift but you know for me i always enjoyed that that wind trainer in the corner of the room and just did my big gear work and and you know put some some heavy music on and just to get a good grunt workout in and then enjoy the bike groups just for that change of pace type work and it was and then run groups like you said i think you know just having a group that you can run with um you know for my specialty type work i'd always step away and do my own kind of work but generally speaking it was um you can't say enough about the groups to keep the passion alive. You know, it's, you've got to be amongst others that are also passionate and want to be there and love what they do. It's too hard to do it on your own, you know, the entire time. But what about you, um, you know, you, your body work kind of guys, have you got a, a team of guys that you see regularly just to try and keep your body in line? Cause you've had your, your struggles with, you know, you've had stress fractures and Achilles injuries and all sorts of things that are fairly, typical to a lot of high performance athletes that are really pushing you know the very edge have you been able to establish a good team there yeah i have I've got a, a great physio again that i've um known for over 15 years i think um and um you know been seeing her a bit more um and also a, a great snc coach as well um who's just you know super keen and take a i think one of the keys for endurance sport is a really kind of holistic view of the whole picture isn't it someone who's prepared to come out on a, a windy evening and look at you run around a track and you know keep in contact with you when you're um on the friday when you're tired to see what that session should look like and stuff and and, and monitor it as you go along so yeah i think i've got a good team and i think kind of most importantly i've just found a, a relatively good groove over the last year of um what i can manage and, and can't manage and um, how, I, how I can train and, and what it looks like in terms of the stuff that I've got to do outside the training to try and keep the body healthy to, to do the to do the training and yeah I had some really really good impact on that over the over the last six months hmm. yeah I've, I've often say on this show it's one thing for somebody to be good at their job but if they can actually just truly want the best for you um it's amazing how much better they can be. And, and I've talked about my massage therapist in, in Boulder, Colorado, you know, after a couple of bike crashes and things. And he's the kind of guy, he's a Venezuelan guy that Marcus Mejias, and he worked with myself and many of the athletes in Boulder, but he would drop everything to come over to my house every afternoon, you know, just to get the body back in line after a bad crash or a bad injury. And, you know, often at no cost or whatever. He just wanted to be there and make sure that I could get ready and get back on a start line. And and to have those people in your corner is, it's just really empowering, uh, I think, you know. And, and even today when I consult or, or coach a couple of athletes, I actually start with let's build your team around you first. Let's let's make sure your wife or your husband's on board or the kids or whatever, everybody's on board. You've got your family team behind you. 
let's uh, make sure we've got a good bodywork behind guy behind you. Let's get the chiropractor or whatever is physiotherapist or strength and conditioning coach to really make sure you have no great weaknesses. Um, and then once we get those kind of team people behind you, okay, now let's start looking at your, you know, your nutrition and your training programs and all of that kind of stuff. But um, I re- am most excited to talk to you about your mental approach and obviously most ex- specifically the London Olympics. And I know you've probably talked this one to death, but just hang in there with me for a little bit because I, I, I love this fact that for people that don't understand or didn't witness London Olympics, um, firstly, you're the hometown favorite um, and the favorites never seem to win tr- the, the, the Olympic triathlon. Um, in 2000, Simon Lessing was a favorite from, from Britain. He didn't win. In 2004, I was kind of one of the favorites along with a couple of others and I got injured and was taken out, you know, and came fourth. 2008, Javier Gomez was the favorite, Achilles injury taken out. It just hadn't really happened yet. It it seemed to always be something getting in the way of the favorites getting ready for the Olympics. But you were able to get yourself to that start line and the crowd around the serpentine at the at in London there around the lake had to be over half a million people. I don't know how to count crowds, but anybody just go YouTube London Olympic triathlon. It was five ten deep the whole way around. People up trees, the whole thing. It was it was massive. And here you are on billboards around London as one of the favourites for Olympic gold for for the British fans. And just take me through how did you get yourself ready and relaxed and be able to do what you needed to get done on that day without losing your shit. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I might be wrong here, but I remember you telling me that um, all Olympic favorites get an Achilles injury in the January before the Olympics and come fourth. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, the pressure was coming from all angles, obviously. And uh, yeah. And I, I don't know. I think, um, I uh, obviously had a, a great team around me. I was in a, a super good bit of form. You know, I, I, I truly believe that if I could just get myself, do everything I could and get myself on the start line in the best possible place I could be in, then that was the kind of the job done, you know, which was a fantastic place to be in. I um, I did actually have an Achilles injury in January, which I think is what you probably wrote to me about. And, um, and oh, that, shit. That, that, did I didn't write you before the Olympics, did I? That would have been I a can't nasty remember thing to do. It was before or after, but no, yeah, I, I would never do that too. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and anyway, that got better. And, um, thankfully, you know, from the day that got better, uh, I, I couldn't have had a better, whatever that was, four or five months run into it. You know, every day was perfect. I, got up, trained hard, did some massive amounts of training um, and ended up stood on that start line knowing I've never been fitter, I couldn't be any fitter. Um, and, you know, the, yeah, okay, it took some hard work to get there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, what every athlete always says. But um, you've got a – there's an enormous amount of luck. You know, so much could have gone wrong that day. And there was other people around that I saw that were stood on the Olympic start line, you know, other people I knew well who – weren't in that position I just thought oh the stress and how bad it'd be to be in this position um in the Olympics and, and not be in the best possible shape and carrying an injury you know that would be hell and actually I've been really lucky to be at two Olympics and be in that position thankfully 
um, and it's come off. And um, yeah, that was the main thing. I, I, I knew that I'd done everything I could on that day. I knew that I was prepared perfectly. I knew um, physically I'd done everything I could and I was super happy with where I was. And it was just about going out and, I guess, executing on that day. Um, I mean, there was a lot of pressure around, uh, but you know, that, that all isn't too significant. You don't feel that pressure if, um, you know, you're confident and we both were confident. Um, we were, we were sat the morning before the race. I remember so clearly and the news story, repeat news story on BBC is running about how people had come from basically half of Leeds had come down from Leeds to watch us compete. And they were saying, oh, how have you got here this morning? You know, we got here on the coach or we came last night and we, you know, whatever, got a lift down with a friend. Uh, and we were watching this sat on the bed in Johnny's hotel room just thinking, you know, we better not F this up. Um, <laughs> uh, I think uh, in some ways as well, it probably really helped that there was two of us because we could mm. stand there at that time and, and kind of say, uh well, if the likelihood is is that if one of us messes this up, um, the other one will do okay, and um, probably not much consolation if Johnny done really well and I'd and I'd done badly. I probably wouldn't feel great afterwards, but uh, you'll take any consolation you can get beforehand. It's it's amazing when you uh, when you have prepared for for an event and you stand on that start line and you go. I am as fit as I could ever be. I'm healthy and I'm ready to go. It's it's rather than, and, and Laura always put it, What my wife Laura, who is a professional athlete as well, but that, for people that don't know, but she would always say, no, I'm excited rather than nervous. And it is a difference. And, and especially when you even start throwing that word around, saying I'm excited rather than being nervous. Nervous has a real negative kind of connotation to it, whereas being excited still has the adrenaline flowing. There's a There's an element of, you know, heightened arousal, if you like, when you say excited. And I think that's a, a, a more positive way of doing it. And I think that's what you get when you are so prepared. You're excited to show the world what you can do. And and that's what it looked like to me. And and I had Javier Gomez on the show, as I mentioned, and 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 we were talking about some of the greatest performances of his career. And he he actually says probably the greatest performance of his career, one-off race, is – getting second to you at the London Olympic Games. He said, I ran a 29.15, I think it was. And he said, I trained believing a 29.10 would win that race. And he said, I celebrated a little bit down the finishing line. So basically I ran my 29.10. He said, but Alistair Brownlee ran a 29.07 or 29.06. I don't know what it was, but he just said there was nothing more I could have done on that day. I was just beaten by a better man. How does that make you feel when when some when you your fellow competitor says that? Yeah, really happy. Obviously, um, I I knew I was you know in in great shape going into that day. I I think the year before the fastest run time would be something like twenty nine forty five. I thought you know that twenty nine fifteen. If I'm in that kind of position, no one will um, will, will be anywhere near me. And I was kind of surprised that. Um, it ended up relatively close. Uh, you know, it really was a, you know, probably all three of us competing really, you know, at the top end of our um, of our abilities that day. And yeah, I'm, just, I'm thankful that I was just good enough to come out on top. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and was it was it r- relief? Because I know sometimes 
some of the, the it's funny sometimes you go in pressure you can feel excited like i said rather than nervous and but you can get to the end of a a big performance and and the only one that i have similar in my world is in 2007 they had a series in the us of five races and if you won all five they had these you know this huge money bonus and everything else and i'd won four in a row and then i'd had a bit of an injury between the fourth and the fifth race and got to the fifth race and I remember getting off the bike and just sprinting and just trying to fake it because I felt like my fitness had not wasn't where it should. And now when I got to the finishing line, I was elated, but there was almost like tears of just relief that that I didn't realize how much pressure I'd had on myself. Did you have that kind of a feeling or was it just pure joy? Did you have any kind of feeling of just relief? Yeah, I, I mean, I got asked this question a thousand times in the days afterwards and and so my, i think my answer is probably a bit polluted by uh you know what i've actually answered since and what was re- real but there was literally a hundred emotions you know crossing that finish line um one of them was definitely relief obviously joy happiness just being a bit knackered um and yeah you know quite exactly what had gone on i, I think you know the context is i had known about that race for seven years um the the pressure and again it's one of the oldest adages in sport there was enormous external pressure but the the internal pressure was the most significant thing the fact that i'd known about that that was as far as i was concerned every other race up to then could have been absolutely irrelevant if i messed that race up um and yeah you know i would have swapped every race from a whole career for the, a good race on that day. Um, and yeah, so th- that internal pressure was eno- enormous. You know, there was the British pressure. There was the fact that no British athlete had ever won a medal. Um, there was the fact that everyone was expecting, expecting me to do that, you know, all those things. And yeah, relief was definitely one of them, but, uh, just a massive sense of satisfaction. Uh, like I, I was, you know, had, a bit just enough about me to go actually just take a breath and kind of enjoy this moment and uh that was maybe helped by the fact that johnny we crossed the finish line and johnny was collapsed on the floor being sick and not able to move and i was just kind of stood around talking to people had some (laughs) had some great uh you know friends there on, on the side of the course and stuff and saying well done and just had a bit of time to to chill out, I guess, before stepping on the Olympic podium, which, you know, it, it is no um, exaggeration to say is is literally every athlete's dream. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and, and what, what's more incredible is, you know, you did that and then like no one's done before in our sport, you, you back that up again in, in Rio. And what was interesting about, Rio, it hadn't been all smooth sailing going to Rio. In fact, I think 2015 was a bit of a, a rougher year for you. Um, and then you had some injuries even at the start of 2016 and trying to get your body going again, a bit like 2016, uh, 2012 with the, with the Achilles injury you had. And now now you were coming out of another injury getting ready for, for Rio. Was Rio a little bit more like tick the box or did you just simply say, I need to enjoy this finishing line a bit more because London was so close um, all the way to the end, you know, was Rio a bit more like, okay, really take this one in? Yeah, I had a little bit more breathing space in Rio. Um, and it was, I, I was aware, I, I, I was kind of um, 
conscious enough to go, you know, this is the second time uh, and, you know, that you're going to cross the line for the Olympics to win the Olympic Games and you didn't get to enjoy it that much last time. So uh, just take a uh, take a breath and, and, and enjoy it this time. So I did and, and got to enjoy that finishing straight that was really special. Um, it, it was very special for you know, it's the Olympic Games and obviously a dream, but also, yeah, I felt like I'd been on a, a personal battle, really, to get the body in the right place to be on that start line and to be able to do it. You know, I'd, from about eight months out, I'd, you know, literally uh, tried to do everything, you know, from uh, basically writing and, and coming up with my own strength conditioning and, and stuff to to take control and just make sure I was doing absolutely everything to the best of my ability to get there. Um, and yeah, so th- there was a, a slightly different dynamic, um, in terms of being really proud yeah. and, and getting there and thinking, yeah, I'm just super, super glad it, it's all come together. I feel like I've been fighting to get there. Mm. I know it can be really frustrating when your body's, you know, your mind is there and, and your passion is there and your body's just not cooperating. And and it's a real pressure that an athlete feels, you know, it's it's the, obviously the pressure you put on your, yourself is number one. It's the, you want the most from yourself and you want to, you want to kind of show the world you what you're capable of. But then there's also the extrinsic pressures of sponsors and federations and, and just your fans that you want to perform for and, and and you don't want to embarrass yourself and you don't want to let them down and there's all those kind of pressures that start to mount and and, and you get to that point where it's like, no, I'm going to gra- grab the Union Jack flag and I'm going to really enjoy just running down, you know, the finishing straight and be be proud of the fact that I actually got there. I, I think that's fantastic. And, and so when you're you know, your race mentality, when you're in a race, are you kind of using some word affirmations? Are you doing any visualizing before those races? Is there anything, like, are you using any triggers like that? Like, you know, I often use the example that I had these words like explode off the start line or, you know, power, you know, and then on the run, I'd use words a bit more relaxed, control. Do you practice any of those things or are you just focusing in that moment? I think first and foremost, I'm very focused. I think um, I have been in, you know, competitive endurance situations since I was six or seven years old. Uh, and I think I've kind of learned to deal with those and get the most out of my, those situations by learning on the, on the hoof, as it were, you know, literally learn from doing it from experience. And I think that is the most um, poignant, significant and, an important way to learn. Um, I think I've got quite a, a relaxed attitude to things like visualization and um, and keywords. Uh, and you know, I'd like half of me wants to sit here and say, "Nah, that, you know, that's a load of rubbish. I don't do any of that kind of thing." But I think realistically, I've probably taught myself to, or you know, not taught myself. I've I've just kind of come up with ways that work for me, um, protocols and coping strategies as it were um you know without it ever being written down or discussed i've just you know this Mm. is what how i get the best out of myself on that day um whether that's you know dealing with pressure uh in terms of you know telling myself that uh pressure is a privilege and all that and um you know I'm, i'm really lucky to be in that position and that's kind of the attitude i went into london about um and and something that i talk about a lot but also in terms of racing and how to 
get the most out of myself and try and relax at the same time and how to control your energy on the start line. Um, and yeah, in terms of visualization itself, no, I mean, yeah, never ever in my life have I sat with a psychologist or, you know, written down a visualization strategy, but, um, for years going into the London Olympics, I had a bit of row that I trained on at home that I did a tempo run most weeks, um, that had a, a left hand corner and then 800 meters straight. that I practiced basically sprinting down, um, because I thought if this comes down to the last 800 meters in the Olympics, I'm going to be the best prepared. You know, I've done this week in, week out at the end of a long training day when I'm tired um, and I'm teaching myself to sprint down this bit of road. And then when it comes to sprinting down, I think it's called Serpentine Avenue or whatever it is in Hyde Park in London, uh, I'll have done it a hundred times before, tired, and I, I kind of know what to do. So, you know, yeah, I mean, if that isn't, visualization i don't know what it is <laughs> yeah i think you've just i think you've just told me your your, your actual visualization i love that i just love that 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 preparedness that you have that you were you were so ready for that it reminds me a little bit of you know i used to train with simon whitfield who's the 2000 olympic gold medalist and we were training in victoria canada and and he had stretches of road and trails named after almost every event and every athlete <laughs> and we'd be running oh. along and be like oh yeah this is simon lessing straight this is rail you know yeah, and he, he, told na- he named about, he everything. told me about those yeah depending yeah. on how much he liked the trail and how hard and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and look we we both know simon Whitfield. he's uh very creative and and you know, yeah. lives in his own head in a very creative space and, and very enjoyable <laughs> to talk to because he has this this kind of creativity about him that that visualizing to him has always been a big game and 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 for me visualizing was something like you. I, I can't you kind of do it innately as an athlete that you're seeing a performance that you want and then it's just about repetition that that you you're visualizing yeah. it. And I've talked on this show about how I would get to the point I'd visualize out in my training, like you you said you'd have your trail or your stretch of road that mimicked some specific race that you wanted to get for in, in your case, London Olympics. But I also would all visualize quite often just on the massage table. And what I mean by that, that could be just thinking about the race. But I got to the point I would start to really be specific the way I think about the race. Okay, there's Alistair Brownlee, there's Javier Gomez, there, and dissecting the athlete and what how they're going to likely race and where I'm going to have to go, whatever it is. And and I think that's where I got in trouble, you know, in 2011 when I was racing you and Javier and, and your brother Johnny was realizing, well, hang on, I can't even visualize to the point of figuring out how to beat you guys. <laughs> it was like, hang on, how do I visualize somebody that I don't think I know how to how to beat? And that's where it became quite difficult. Um, but so you do in one essence, you do visualize. And like you, I've never seen sports psychologists or, or anything else. I've had a lot of help with my wife, Laura, who's very rational and very calm in the way she approaches things. So she's been a good trade-off for me. A bit like you have Johnny, I've had Laura to be able to kind of share the burden of any kind of pressure at events with. You know, It can always be, well, if I don't win, so long as Laura does, at least we're going home with something. Um, so I do understand that kind of, pressure and the ability to to visualize a success and i I love that that you you had worked a hundred times over that that finishing straight when was it that you actually ran away from javier gomez was it during that straight no it was uh thankfully i think with about 5k to go (laughs) four or 5k to go so yeah it didn't it didn't quite come down to that straight 
I know, but he just didn't let go. I remember he was, yeah, you guys still stayed so fairly, fairly, yeah. Cl- yeah, he's still close the whole way. I know it was an extraordinary time. So just, just to give our guests a quick little bit of um, things that they can take away. Have you got any, in terms of sleep or specific recovery, are you using any tools or do you do anything specifically for sleep? Do you, do you nap during the day or you don't have to think about it? Yeah, my, um, when I'm training hard, um, my, my kind of recovery strategy is simple and eat well and sleep well. Um, I, I think eating, um, I think sleeping in particular is the vast majority of, um, of recovery. Um, I think, you know, it's hard to put a figure on it, but, uh, you know, all, all the other things I think you can do outside that, including massage, even compression and stuff, um, are in the one percenters and sleep is the vast majority and nutrition makes up the rest. Um, mm. so that's my strategy. I think when, you know, when I'm training really hard, I'm, I'm trying to sleep nine or 10 hours a night and nap during the day. Um, mm. and yeah, sleep well. I'm, I'm, I'm super kind of specific about that. Try and I, I live somewhere really, um, dark, really, really quiet. Um, cold as well because I live in the UK um, and uh, yeah I think that's important and, and obviously eat well you know I've, I've worked with great nutrition supporters and sponsors over the years most recent this OTE a Yorkshire based company and um, yeah that I, I think especially again as I've got older that, that post workout nutrition has, has become important um, and yeah and, and sleeping well at night and, and during the day um, but there's nothing I do specifically just trying to have a a really good kind of sleep routine go to bed at the same time mm. um and yeah no no technology no phone in the bedroom i read a lot as well so it gives me a chance to kind of uh chill out and and uh just slow down a little bit in the evening and, and then sleep well yeah there's a lot of good tips actually right there you don't think you do anything special but all of those things uh you know cool dark and quiet for a room are, are critical and then obviously turning off the blue lights and everything getting ready for sleep and, and just reading and and getting yourself ready it's almost like you you're prioritizing sleep I, I i think a lot of people aren't prioritizing the importance of sleep and like you said then the nutrition but what about you, your general health are you taking any supplements do you do any blood work or anything like that yeah, I do a bit of blood work when I need to, but I, I've always been really fortunate in that uh, that space that I guess, you know, every time I do a blood test, they might say, oh, you've got slightly low vitamin D or a little mm. bit low iron or something. You know, it's never anything mad, so I just tend to take a, a multivitamin supplement and um, that's about it, really, and, and that's all, mm. all that I've needed. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think we all got our weaknesses and my weakness seems to be structural weakness in terms of my muscles and tendons rather than my immune system because I literally never get ill. Yeah, that's awesome. Are you doing much lab testing when it comes to your training? I had a Christian Blumenfeld on the show last week and and the Norwegian Olympic team seemed to be getting – he told me he's getting doing lab tests every six to eight weeks and every six to eight weeks, he's doing swim, bike, and run over the same sort of weekend. Um, VO2 maxes in each of them, and everything. How how much of that kind of work are you doing? Because for me personally, I think I did that once or twice in my entire career. But he's doing it every six to eight weeks. I had Nino Scherter, the the Olympic gold and eight time world champion mountain biker, um, on two weeks ago, and he said, "Look, maybe twice a year he does tests." Are you doing anything like that? 
Yeah, I, I'm the opposite to your last interviewee. And I think the last <laughs> time I did a lab test was maybe 2005 or six. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, one of my kind of really uh, important maxims in sport has been, yeah, there's there's so many, you know, interesting things we can do today, but is it going to affect what I do tomorrow? Um, and I, I, one of the fantastic things is we're really lucky with the, the British program. You know, we can have all the support we want today, you know, literally anything, everything and anything, um, which is brilliant. Um, but, you know, my decision has always been, you know, take the lab test as an example, but, you know, not the only example. Um, if I do a lab test today and test out where my – the max or threshold is is it going to change the bike ride i'm going to do tomorrow and um if the answer to that question is no then I, i've just kind of always cut it out and thought i can make better use of the time effectively mm. um and and so that's why i haven't really done it in the last 15 years you're, you're a bit like i am and it's not to say the way christian's doing it or Absolutely. the norwegian team is not right they're doing some they're getting some incredible results out of their athletes at the moment um but like you, I think my last one I did was in 1998. Um, <laughs> and, and I was like, you know what? I, I really don't know that I, I need to keep doing that. And, and then they started to discuss the variables because we did it at, you know, it was like 800 meters of altitude. So then that affects the result. I was like, oh, my goodness. So we really, uh, like you, unless maybe if I was doing it religiously, like, like Christian said he was, and, um, you know, and, and he's obviously – doing incredibly well and, and so is uh, Gustav Eden who you obviously you know he, he just got you on the line um, in in uh, 70.3 worlds last year they're, they're obviously getting some great performances out of what they're doing but for me I always felt like I didn't want to be ruled by the lab I wanted to play and play was important in terms of what could I do that maybe I didn't even know I could do how could I go beyond what the lab might so I, I almost felt like the lab could be used as a limiter to my performance. And so I was kind of always like, I don't know if I want to go do that. And that was just my personal preference. For me, triathlon was always play. It was always a game. It was always camaraderie with friends. It was a, it was a way of learning more about myself in, a, in, a, in an environment that was surrounded by other people trying to beat you up and you had to try and survive. Um, I didn't want to be told the results almost before I got to do the race. Um, so that was – the way I kind of looked at lab testing, I guess. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think there's a couple of things. I think uh, there's many ways to skin the proverbial cat. Um, you know, one of the fascinating things about sport, anything in endurance training, is that um, th there's many different ways to train. And mm. um, that's what makes it interesting. And, you know, I've done it one way and there's many other ways to do it for sure. Mm. Um uh, and yeah, you know, I think that that approach is is definitely one of them, and is is very valid. And then I think the other thing is, yeah, your argument that the kind of semantics, uh, kind of interest argument about it is, how do I get the most out of myself day to day? And you know, that's not necessarily kind of lab tests and numbers. That's the the purity of the sport, and it's teaching myself to how hard can I push myself. Um, and the, the kind of beauty and the interest of it. And, and, and that's another one. Um, mm. For me, I, I think it's kind of a combination of both of those. It was finding out how I could get the best out of myself and the most out of myself every day to, you know, to ultimately stand on that start line um, in the best position. 
uh, and, and part of that was what motivates me. And um, I didn't really find um, training and doing numbers here or there motivated me. What motivated me was going out on the local chain gang and and, and trying to ride harder and faster and stronger than the guy next to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, ultimately, uh, if I could do, if that meant it was, you know, this is just numbers, but if that was 5% less effective than training another way, but it meant I could do 10% more, that was the best way to do it. I agree with you. I actually, I remember you came down. You did a little training camp in in Noosa, Australia, where where I live. Yeah. For sort of, a, and I remember you coming out on the one of the the chain gangs, as you put it, on our, our ride with you and your brother Johnny. And we were all kind of swapping turns on the way home from uh, Boring Point, I think it was. Um, actually, were you there? It was Johnny. I think, I think Javier I was training. Yeah. yeah, and and you were still pretty young, though. I think what year was yeah. that? I think I I think you were. I think uh, maybe 2008 or something. I can't remember, but it, you guys were still pretty young. And I remember going, I've got to try and crush these guys. You know, it was like my mm-hmm. typical, your typical ego that you had in sport. And then mm-hmm. obviously several years later, I remember racing against you in uh, in Kitzbühel in 2011, like I mentioned. And, and I think you and I were kind of dro- sharing a, a bit of work on the front of the bike there. I'm like, wow, this guy just doesn't let up. <laughs> you know, I was like, <laughs> stop, stop. I need a rest. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so how quickly you you improved. So, um, what have you? What advice can you give for people in terms of any kind of gear recommendations? Is there anything that you're like, especially now with people locked up in home? Is there anything that you're doing specifically um, that you encourage people to maybe maybe include into their own training or workouts? Uh, I think specifically for now, I think it's just having really good to have a. Um, perspective on the whole thing you know we don't know what situation we're going to be in. i think actually it's just generally good advice isn't it making it sustainable um Mm. you know we can all do a massive amount of training for one or two weeks it's actually how much training can we put together for i think you know you've got to do something for three months to make a significant change um and, and get significantly fitter or whatever so i think it's having that um you know hopefully this doesn't last three months but actually you know tomorrow is sunday and next day is monday what can i do on a sunday and monday that i can do and sustainable that i can do in the six or 12 sundays and mondays after that um mm. and i think consistency is the key you know so many times i feel in, in in the world people are saying well you know what's the one tip to do something better and i say well th- this is the most boring answer because you get it all the time but there isn't a shortcut you know that is the that is the advice um there is no shortcut. You've just mm. got to do the simple things right over and over again, and that's what makes the difference, I think, ultimately. And what do you think? I mean, we talked about in the show that you know one of the things we really advise people is to you know train in groups. Uh, and now it seems that we we're giving advice that's impossible for people to do right now. And and so in terms of, are you doing any kind of online? work with others as well are you doing zwift and things like that uh yeah i've actually done zwift quite a bit on and off i mean for me zwift has one value and that is being able to race other people <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, i hate that the, the t- or the trainer as you might call it um i would literally never do it and have never done it for years and years go out in the snow instead and do hill reps or something but um being able to race on Zwift like completely changes that for me and actually I quite uh I quite enjoy it um mm. you know so yeah I think it's a really good tool to be able to 
get a really hard, you know, most races are between 20 and 40 minutes, get a really hard 30, 40 minutes out with a, a warm up and, and cool down. You've got an hour, a great hour session there and you don't really need to worry about doing boring five by five minute reps or anything. You've just got a, a hard session and uh, I think that's great. I think the one um, bit of uh, advice that you could give someone, if, if I can give advice here, is that don't take it serious and it shouldn't be, you know, equivalent to racing outside because uh, it is different and it's a game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you you actually are on as Alistair Brownlee so people can ride against you? Yeah, yeah. I'm on as Alistair Brownlee, yeah. yeah. All, right. All right. So everybody's loading up, throwing every punch they've got, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. It's, I don't know. I'm pretty insignificant in the Zwift world. There's, there's a lot of people out there with a lot of watts <laughs> I know. Well, yeah, I think I think we can all manage to twist that around. Uh, so, what about in terms of training locations or events? Anything you kind of recommend people where to go train or what races they should do? Uh, apart from Leeds and Yorkshire, which is the best training location on the planet, obviously. Is that um, right? In all yeah, seriousness, that's... is it is it amazing? I mean, I know you guys always talk about it and love it, and you're incredible spokespeople. Is it is it really amazing training? I mean, I think so. I think we've got a, you know, we've got that a um, history and culture and environment of endurance training, you know, cycling groups going out all the time um, and loads of people running, um, you know, lots of swimming and, and to be honest, even quite a lot of triathlon now. So uh, I think that's really cool. But, you know, that culture goes back for forever. You know, I have ridden with guys who are, now in the 70s have trained around here since they were kids and you know done the same group rides and are still going out on the group rides and trying to hang on you know that that culture and environment is brilliant and um exists every day and there's always people to ride with and it's super interesting and it's got its own dynamics but that's fantastic too um so that's the main thing and yeah great quiet roads and trails to mm. to run on so that's great but outside home um yeah johnny and i have trained a lot in Samaritz in Switzerland over the years. Uh, yeah, really enjoyed that. Um, like training there, we train a lot in the south of Spain near Alicante. Um, and that's great in, in the winter, just it's a couple of hours flight from here and it means we can get some sunshine and it, it's a nice yeah. place to be, you know, amazing riding. If you go there through the winter, there'll be hundreds of professional cyclists there and stuff. And yeah, great training. Um, yeah, I think I've been lucky enough to go to all kinds of places over the years, uh, mm-hmm. but they're the ones I particularly enjoyed. All right, mate. Well, this has been fantastic. And normally, I would ask, you know, what does twenty twenty have in store for you? But I think uh, <laughs> I think we can we could just leave that for the moment. Uh, well, quickly, yeah. what do you have to do to qualify? Have they are they changing the qualifying process for Tokyo now for you, or is it still kind of much the same? You need a performance at a certain event or something? Yeah, to be honest, it's come, no one knows. And, um, uh, you know, that's no one's fault of anyone. No. You know, this situation is absolutely unprecedented. As it, as it would have been, it would have been, as I did expect, you know, just showing that I could be in the position to compete and, and win a medal at the Olympic Games in Tokyo. And, and that would have included, uh, you know, just good, mm. you know, top-end results at World Series. And so... I was thinking Bermuda, which was, you know, coming up in 18th of mm. April and then on to um, Yokohama. So I was really focusing on having good results there. So I think it'll probably be similar situation in 12 mm. months' time. Um, but I also, for, for me personally at the moment, it's not too important 
uh, or you know, actually very good for me to think about that at the moment. It's more yeah, of a, yeah. yeah, you know, day in, day out, um, see where we are in another month, two months, see if um, the situation's changing and, and then, you know, then think about racing. Mate, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for all your time. And for those listening, um, you've got the book, Swim, Bike, Run, Our Triathlon Story, which was published back in 2013. So you might need to yeah, do a revised there's, there's version. There's coming that. soon. Uh, Don't worry. <laughs> oh, good. Good, good. I, th- I figured there'd have to be because there's been plenty that's happened in yeah. both your life and your brother Jonathan's life over this last, uh, you know, since 2013. And you've got the Brownlee Foundation. Um, you know, you guys have been incredible ambassadors in the sport and, and especially the UK and, and Yorkshire boys. Um, and people follow you just as Alistair Brownlee on Instagram and Twitter and, and your social media accounts. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. And that's it, mate. Um, you know, so thanks. It's been a real pleasure, mate. Thanks for spending your, your evening with me chatting and just really talking to, you know, like I said at the top of the show, I, I believe one of the, the greatest ever. And, you know, it's, uh, I think that you amongst maybe one or two others, it's, it's, it'd be an interesting discussion around the table. But, um, mate, a real pleasure. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, stay on the line, mate. I appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.